Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for your company at the beginning of a new week. Thank you for joining us here on ADH. We talk common sense here in layman's language and we aren't woke. More of that tonight, I can tell you. But firstly, uh, Victoria is facing its worst flooding in a generation. Hundreds of homes damaged, almost 10 towns or cities have been evacuated. Residents in inner West Melbourne forced to flee. Streets in low-lying areas of Maribyrnong were inundated, the streets inundated, covered in water. Country towns are bracing for more devastation. Echuca, a beautiful part of the world, if you ever get a chance to go there, it's facing another peak. Though the latest reports mid-afternoon today tell us that conditions have stabilised in regional hubs like Echuca and Shepparton. Nonetheless, the Campaspe River, made famous of course by Banjo Patterson, continues to threaten properties, though river levels appear to be slowly dropping, we hope. At Shepparton, the Goulburn River failed to reach the predicted peak of 12.2 metres overnight, peaking at 12.05 metres, but thousands of properties have been damaged. But don't worry, the government is here to save you, and those affected in nominated local government areas will get $1,000 per adult and $400 per child. Blow me over. When will we have a national disaster fund where at each budget money is appropriated and then managed for these purposes? We would have at any given time hundreds of millions of dollars in such a fund, if not billions, and vic victims wouldn't have to become beggars. There have been further crises in New South Wales too. Forbes in the Central West is a victim of the Lachlan River. People have been evacuated there, but reports suggest the Lachlan River peaked on Friday night, but parts of the Forbes CBD are still inundated. Flooding in the Riverina district is likely to be as bad as, or worse than, the 1993 flood, the area's second biggest on record. Major flooding further up in Warren, and if the Macquarie River continues to rise, there will be severe flooding at Wellington and Narromine in the coming days. People at Narandra were ordered to evacuate before 6 p.m. last night. And the way these rivers move, flooding can occur weeks later. The Murrumbidgee's main flood peak passed through Wagga last week. It has passed the minor flood level at Balranald, but major flooding is not expected to reach towns like Hay until late October. Flood warnings in New South Wales remain for 11 rivers. Another storm system that was forecast to develop over central Australia tomorrow. October rainfall records have been set in parts of inland New South Wales, including Broken Hill. Now in Tasmania, part of the southeast flood threat, almost 100 properties have been damaged by flooding in the north and northwest Tasmania. But they do say significant floodwaters will subside in coming days, but dozens of roads there in Tasmania remain closed, and the state's Great Lakes region received 398 millimetres of rain, 15 inches in 30 hours. Put simply, the flood crisis in southeast Australia is not over. And of course, a massive race meeting at Randwick on Saturday. The $15 million Everest was won by Gigakick, and the most unrecognisable trainer, 27-year-old Clayton Douglas, who admitted he'd never met some of his rival trainers. He's a former jumps jockey, but he did predict last week that his three-year-old, I must, must say one thing here, the horse isn't three. Every horse has a birthday on August 1, so automatically he goes to three years of age, but actually Giga Kick won the race as a two-year-old. The gelding won't be three until uh, tomorrow, no, tomorrow's Tuesday, until Wednesday. The horse is unbeaten. It is typical of the luck of our friend and owner, Jonathan Munns, whom I say to him, he's watching in New York, you hardly need the cash, mate. And Craig Williams, the jockey, whose wife Larissa is from the Ukraine, and Craig and Larissa, whose parents remain in Ukraine, have done remarkable humanitarian work for the country. They visited Ukraine during the war on many occasions. And sad to report, the passing at the end of last week of the former federal politician and good friend of mine, John Spender, the former husband of Carla Zampatti and the father of the independent MP Allegra and the fashion designer Bianca. John Spender is the son of Liberal Cabinet Minister under Menzies, Sir Percy Spender, 
John was a successful barrister for two decades and entered the federal parliament in 1980 as the member for North Sydney. He was a thorough gentleman, a scholar, widely read with a unique sense of humour. We shared many red wines and toasted tomato sandwiches in the early hours of the morning after a very late night at the parliament. John Spender will be farewelled next Monday at St Mark's Church, Darling Point at 11am. You're watching ADH TV, I'm Alan Jones. I am anything but a pessimist, but the overwhelming conclusion drawn by people today in Struggle Street is that the world has gone mad. Surrendering to minorities. HSBC, as most would know, is a British multinational universal bank, the largest bank in Europe by total assets. As of December 2021, total assets were US $2.9 trillion. I mentioned some months ago that Stuart Kirk was the bank's global head of responsible investing. He was first suspended for a speech he made last May, May this year, where he said, quote, there's always some nut job telling me about the end of the world, unquote. He further said, quote, a cancel culture destroys wealth and progress. Subsequently, he resigned. Apparently his comments, if you're to believe HSBC, had an impact on environmental, social and governance issues. Stuart Kirk had a 27 year unblemished record in finance, journalism and consulting. But on the 19th of May this year, in a considered speech, he argued that, quote, unsubstantiated, shrill, apocalyptic warnings are always wrong. Christiana Figueres, the former head of the United Nations Climate Secretariat, denounced Stuart Kirk's remarks as abhorrently outrageous. This is the same woman who in 2014, when she was part of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change said, quote, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we're setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, changing the economic development model that's been reigning for the last 150 years since the Industrial Revolution, unquote. A dumb warning in 2014. But when someone like the banker Stuart Kirk warns that unsubstantiated, shrill, apocalyptic warnings are always wrong, according to Figueres, the remarks are abhorrently outrageous. So another leading figure fired for questioning the climate change catechism, banker Stuart Kirk, after a 27 year unblemished record. The $2.9 trillion company HSBC didn't have the guts to tolerate a different opinion. Kirk's problem, telling the truth, contrary to the central dogma of environmental, social and governance investing, which holds that it's the duty of finance and business to save the world from a planetary catastrophe. As one writer said to me yesterday, quote, how on earth are we educated people going to cope with this plethora of unbalanced interviews promoting the need to drive everything on earth to an emissions zero target? Well, says my retired lawyer correspondent from New Zealand. Good evening to you, Alan. I know you're watching. He said, I'm at wit's end. So are my friends who understand from a basis of both truth and education that a giant mistake is being made by our numbskull politicians. What a hole we are in now, right over our heads, unquote. Well, even people like the Santos chief executive, Kevin Gallagher, are singing from the net zero hymn sheet while saying, without mentioning coal, of course, but with his focus on gas, quote, we need investment in new supply to support our existing energy system, as well as the decarbonisation projects that will enable an orderly transition rather than the chaos we're seeing today, unquote. Well, translated, that means we're having a bet each way. It means that these so-called decarbonisation projects, which are renewable energy, are producing chaos. And therefore, we quote, need investment in new supply. Like the rest of the world, that means building coal-fired power plants. That was Santos. Then the Alinta chief executive told an energy conference last week that power prices in Australia will soar by at least 35% in 2023. And he described the current energy situation as horrendous, it is unpalatable, he said. Which brings us to the latest stupidity. I've said over and over again, generation of electricity only contributes 32% towards greenhouse gas emissions, if that is the problem, which I believe isn't. However, transport is 18%, 
and agriculture is responsible for 14%. So the emissions from transport and agriculture are 32%, about the same as for electricity generation. The attack on our agricultural sector is real. I mentioned last week the New Zealand Labor government, that's this Ardern, is talking about taxing the greenhouse gases that farm animals in New Zealand make from burping and urinating. Part of the plan to tackle, of course, climate change. So New Zealand farmers are facing a farm levy, the first in the world. New Zealand's Federated Farmers, their main lobby group, rightly said the plan would, quote, rip the guts out of small town New Zealand, unquote, and replace farms with trees. Well, now the Albanese government plans to slash methane emissions like New Zealand by 30% by 2030, but there'd be no more animal extinctions. Isn't this typical of Labor? Walk and chew gum at the same time? As Vicky Campion wrote splendidly at the weekend, what about wild pigs or feral cats? The environmental destruction of wild pigs has been compared by scientists to millions of cars. Feral cats, which have driven 27 natives to extinction. Why are we worried about cattle emissions? As Vicky Campion rightly asked, what are the emissions of the estimated 24 million feral pigs compared to 2.4 million domestic pigs? Unquote. Well, if methane is a problem, when it's really only part of the net zero religion, how do you reduce the methane from hundreds of thousands, not of cattle, but of horses and deer and goats and camels and rabbits? They urinate as well, you know, and they break wind as well. But the Albanese government is not entirely stupid. They know they're heading for trouble. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt has called for business, the business of reducing methane in agriculture as aspirational. That there'll be no new taxes or regulations on farmers, but rather the government will work with industry to, quote, improve the diet of livestock to lower emissions. Diet, you see. You don't break wind if you've got the right diet, really. I wonder if any of them have ever been on a farm. No more animal extinctions. What do we collectively say? The world has gone mad. Since we're talking about urinating and breaking wind, the only appropriate comment, pardon the language, is that this is all crap. Methane-free crap, of course. Last week, I spoke to the new federal member for the central Queensland seat of Flynn, a rural electorate, Colin Boyce. He was very impressive, very down to earth. And what we love on this program, not woke and very common sense. Remember, as I told you, he was the state member for Calide in the Queensland Parliament. Now, this is big stuff and a big issue in this country. He got onto the front foot immediately as a candidate, which is exactly what the coalition should be doing now. And Colin Boyce argued that a net zero emission target would entrench Australia. We, we've really got to understand this because I'll tell you what, we're all in it and we're all going to suffer. He said would entrench Australia into a lower standard of living, that it would be people in regional areas who would bear the brunt of it, although people all over Australia will cop it. We're seeing that already. His electorate's dominated by emissions-heavy mining and agriculture. Agriculture never mentioned by Bowen as a victim of Labor policy, although, as I've already said to you, now we're into the methane stuff and we're going to sort of measure the carbon dioxide emissions every time an animal breaks wind. Anyway, and Colin Boyce's electorate, mining and agriculture are the two biggest employers. And Colin Boyce, the new federal member for Flynn, says a net zero policy would put an end to the coal-fired power station that is needed to power Gladstone's gas plants and alumina refineries. Colin Boyce is also a farmer. He said bluntly, if we walk away from affordable coal-fired power, we are walking away from jobs. Now, I spoke last week to Colin about his outstanding maiden speech, where Colin Boyce issued a warning to the wider electorate of Australia, and I quote him, I say this, he said, ordinary Australian people require and deserve the basics of life, food security, water security, energy security, and national security, unquote. Colin Boyce joins me. Colin, thank you for your time. Good to have you back talking common sense. Just to put our viewers in the picture, your electorate is twice as big as Tasmania, 132,000 square kilometres, three coal-fired power stations, Stanwell, Calide and Gladstone, 15 large coal mines producing 90 million tonnes of coking and thermal coal this year, a CSG gas industry producing 25 million tonnes of LNG exported to the world. What happens to all this under Labor's net zero policy? 
Well, good evening, Alan, and it's uh, great to join you once again. And that's a very good question, and that's something that every Australian should be asking themselves. Where on earth are we going with the madness of this energy policy of Mr Albanese and Mr Bowen? Uh, look what's happening in Europe and what's unfolding right there, right now. Uh, Germany, uh, the UK are all in an energy crisis, all because they've exposed their national security on the madness of renewables over the last 15 years that just simply cannot produce reliable and affordable power. 100%, 100%. Now your Gladstone is home to Rio Tinto, Boyne Island Alumina Smelter, the Yarwin Alumina Refinery, the QAL Refinery, one of the world's largest. I mean, how do you power these outfits? Well, you, you've got to have reliable baseload power to do it. and. The reality is, is that solar panels and wind turbines cannot provide frequent, reliable power. They just can't do it. It has been proven everywhere. They are just simply not capable of providing 24-7 power to run heavy industry, uh, alumina smelters, alumina uh, refineries and so forth. Uh, it, you know, it's um, it's right there in front of everybody. Yet here we are with a federal government that insists on closing down coal-fired power stations, on uh, you know proposing to close down both the coal industry and the gas industry. Mm -hmm. What on earth are we going to use for power? Absolutely. Now, Gladstone, I might say to viewers, I believe, and that's the reason I'm speaking to Colin Boyce and we'll speak to him often until people begin to understand. It, this is virtually a metaphor of the problem because Gladstone is the world's fourth largest, the world's fourth largest coal exporting terminal there's a huge agricultural sector around Gladstone producing food and fibre, not for us, for the world, and heavy engineering and a transport sector of road, rail and shipping. So basically, Colin, your electorate is an economic powerhouse that generates the wealth of Australia, but under Labor's energy policy, you will have no power. Yeah, and I mean, the reality of it, Alan, is, is that uh, places like central Queensland and particularly my electorate of Flynn, as you've pointed out, is the economic engine room of Australia. Uh, the gas industry, the coal industry, heavy engineering, agriculture, all of these things are what generates income for the economy of Australia. Every time a boat leaves the port of Gladstone, it either full of coal, full of gas, alumina, um, you know, Gladstone's mm. a multi-commodity shipping mm. port. Uh, that's what generates the income for Australia. Yes, that's it. what pays for schools. Yeah. That's what pays for our roads and our bridges and mm. the wages of our public servants, our hospitals, our nurses, our doctors. Mm. Uh, if we are proposing to shut down these industries, how on earth are we going to generate an income to uh, afford, uh, you know, the lifestyles that most Australians enjoy. Abs absolutely. And for those out there who say, and the many in the Liberal Party, these wets like Birmingham and co, oh, it was a climate change election and we've got to start changing our policy. We've got to get closer to Labor on climate change and we're going to lose votes. Well, the people in the centre of it, at the vortex of this, in, in Collins' electorate, they know what this is all about and they voted for this bloke overwhelmingly. The Greens hardly got a vote in the place. So, I mean, there's been no explanation, Colin, as to what net zero legislation will have on people's lives. But I just, I have a concern here. I mean, where is the coalition, your coalition, firmly and openly opposing this nonsense? Well, absolutely, um, Alan. And uh, the whole point is to this is that what becomes of people's futures, what becomes of their jobs? Uh, you know, uh, here I am trying to lobby my colleagues as well as lobby the federal government uh, uh, to answer these simple questions. What becomes of the future of these, of these people's jobs? Mm, I mean, in your electorate, everyone, almost everyone in your electorate is connected to agriculture, mining resources, heavy industry, power generation and transport. I mean, the Central Highlands Regional Council, which is based in Emerald, derives approximately half its rate revenue from the coal and resource sector. Now, Bowen wants to see the demise of coal and gas industries. Where does the revenue come from just for your local government? Well, c correct. Absolutely correct. And, 
that's absolutely right. Um, half of the revenue of the Central Highlands Regional Council comes from the mining and resource sector. If we're not going to have a mining and resource sector, there's no rate revenue. Therefore, you've got no council. So please answer that one, Mr Bowen. Yeah, there was a, uh, a large regional council to derive an income. Uh, you know, somebody in Sydney, please answer that question. I agree me. with you. I, that's why you're on I'm this at, program. I'm at a loss. That's why I'm talking to you. I'm at a I'm loss at a, too. I mean, as you brilliantly mm. say, and all this is based on computer modelling, and yet when you look at climate, atmospheric and ocean temperature models over the last decades, all have been checked with actual measurements and all the predictions have been wrong. I mean, you said in that maiden speech, maiden speech, this is Colin Boyce, quote, it's preposterous to suggest that computer models can predict the climate future when input data and parameters are manipulated, flawed and wrong, rubbish in, rubbish out. Well, I mean, Morrison joined 25,000 world leaders and bureaucrats in Glasgow and not in agreement with all this rubbish. Uh, I would suggest that's pious virtue signalling. Um, and, uh, you know, what I said in my, uh, my speech, I stand by that. Uh, how can you possibly predict the future on, based on modelling when it doesn't, uh, doesn't collate with Absolutely. what actually happens in real time? Yeah. Uh, I mean, recently there was a... a, a Recently, there were some Italian scientists that um, have, have stated uh, categorically that um, there isn't uh, a greater incidence of bushfires or floods or uh, high oh, temperatures yes. or low temperatures. Mm. It's, uh, there is no trend. Mm. Uh, there is no climate emergency. And I'll say that again, there is no climate Correct. emergency. Correct, and I'll say it again too. And we've spoken to any number of people who confirm that. Michael Schellenberger, Bjorn Lomborg. You see, Merkel was the, the Chancellor, the Renewable Energy Queen of Germany. Okay, Russia turns off the gas. Germany is now on its economic knees. No nuclear, no coal. Merkel, unwanted and unheard of. They phased out coal-fired power and nuclear. But as I talk to you, Colin, on this day, the demand worldwide for coal, gas and petroleum is increasing every year. And as you brilliantly said in that maiden speech, I don't hear anyone asking for more wind turbines or solar panels. They're asking for more coal. They're asking for more gas. They're asking for more nuclear. I don't hear anyone saying, oh, more wind turbines or solar panels. Correct, Alan. And uh, as I say, uh, Germany right now is uh, uh, revamping its coal-fired power stations. They're facing uh, a bitterly cold winter, I believe, over there. And uh, the need for uh, reliable and affordable energy, uh, everybody's going back to coal-fired power stations. Absolutely. And, and uh, you, how often do you see on, uh, uh, you know, media outlets, uh, the world is turning away from fossil fuels? What a load of rubbish. <laughs> we, you know, we, we've never seen the demand for coal higher. and gas and Absolutely. petroleum products higher, higher than it's been no, now. No. And, and Europe, Europe is abandoning, as you and I speak, Europe's abandoning, as you said, with the winter coming, net zero. And as you say, many see the commitments made at Glasgow just virtue signalling, unrealistic, unachievable by all this mob who flow in, fly in in their planes. They're all millionaires, billionaires. They can afford it no matter what the price of energy is. I mean, I'm just asking you, finally, has the opposition, though, learnt the lessons from Europe? And if so, what are they learning? Well, Alan, I want to have the uh, the Gladstone conference, not the Glasgow conference. Good we idea. want the Glads uh, Gladstone on. conference, Good and um, we'll get we'll get twenty five thousand bureaucrats into Gladstone, and we'll show them just exactly what happens in Gladstone and uh, how we generate income for uh, one of the greatest nations on the planet. Good on you. Great to talk to you. You keep at it. We'll keep at it. You'll be a welcome guest on this program anytime because when you and I are sick of saying it, everyone's going to start hearing it. And we've got to educate some of these politicians. But I don't think any of them read and I don't think they listen. I'm blowed if I know. I'm bugger if I know what we put them there for. But Colin, you're a gem. Good to talk to you. Thank you for that. There is Colin Boyce. How Thank good you is so that? much, Alan. And, and just check. You can check his maiden speech. Give it to the kids to read. Because they're brainwashed. Colin Boyce, you'll find it in the hand just you Google it and it's there. He's the member for Flynn. Just continuing this theme of madness, I have a viewer who corresponds with me. He ends all his communications by saying, quote, we live in a time where intelligent people are being silenced 
so that stupid people won't be offended, unquote. It seems there are many stupid young women playing netball for Australia. You might remember three months ago, Netball Australia Chief Executive Kelly Ryan said her organisation was in financial trouble with losses and debts of up to $11 million. The top national netball team is called the Diamonds. Well, fast forward two months and the same Kelly Ryan announced that Hancock Prospecting, the iron ore mining company owned by Gina Reinhardt, quote, will invest directly in the Diamonds athletes and coaches and provide funding support for training camps and competitions. You might recall I gave Gina a big rap for her generosity towards sport. However, this has provoked a response from Australia's netball so-called stars where ignorance and ingratitude apparently abound. Shani Norda, who's played 46 times for Australia and captained the team in 2017, has now called on Netball Australia to quote, do better than accept money from Reinhardt, whom she called a climate denier. Norda said, quote, I did a Zoom call with the players just to educate them on doing right by the sport, but also doing right by yourself and honouring your own values, unquote. Educate the players. She went on, I just wanted to have a conversation. God, don't you hate that word? Everyone's having conversations. Jim Chalmers says we've got to have a conversation on tax. Anyway, this former captain wanted to have a conversation, presumably to ask, quote, is that money worth your reputation? and what you stand for as a person, unquote. Bianca Chatfield is a former president of the Netball Players Association. She said there was previously, quote, a lot of collaboration between the team and Netball Australia regarding commercial matters, unquote. Hmm, seems that the collaboration was unsuccessful if you're about $11 million down the tube. But undeterred, Bianca Chatfield said, in our sport, it's always been about these conversations and making sure the players are aware, unquote. Well, up until now, fairly unproductive conversations. I would have thought, and aware of what? Well, undeterred, she went on. I think it all comes down to that. When Netball Australia signed their partnership and their new deal with Hancock, it just wasn't communicated to the playing group, unquote. Well, I've got some advice for the ladies of Australian netball. Number one, if you don't like Gina Hancock and her generous support of the sport, how about playing for free until Simon Holmes are caught, Twiggy Forrest or Mike Cannon-Brooks decide to throw some money at you? By the way, good luck with that. Cannon-Brooks is worth billions, but doesn't pay a cent of company tax in Australia. Meanwhile, Gina Reinhardt's company paid $540 million in tax in 2019-20. That's the sort of woman she is. Number two, if you don't like Gina Reinhardt, how about you stop playing inside beautiful stadia that are made out of steel? Which, by the way, relies on the mining of iron ore that Gina Reinhardt and her family pioneered in this country to great success. So when you're talking about educating the girls, you educate them to understand that? Number three, if you don't like Gina Reinhardt, how about you donate some of your salaries to providing jobs for Indigenous Australians? Because iron ore mining employs more Indigenous people than any other industry. Yet in spite of this tremendous contribution to the well-being of Australians via Reinhardt's taxes, jobs and support of Indigenous people, she has to cop these slurs and rebuttals by, my, may I say it, ignorant sports people. Australians are sick and tired of sport being the platform for some culture war. Witness the mess at Manly Rugby League Club. Play sport, you people in netball and rugby league, and leave the culture wars to someone else. I'll make a final point. The idea that Reinhardt is an unworthy woman because she has the gall to question the contested theory of human-induced climate change is offensive. I repeat, Reinhardt pays an incredible amount of tax She's created tens of thousands of jobs for people from all walks of life. She's a true patriot who has consistently fought to increase the freedom and prosperity of Northern Australia. Her family single-handedly pioneered iron ore mining in Australia, one of our two largest export industries. And she's given remarkably to Australian sport in its hour of need. And she asks for nothing in return. So my advice to Netball Australia, Try feeding off your ingratitude and watering your ignorance because the players, given the honour of representing Australia, may well be the architects of the extinction of the national team that they purport to represent. My final point is this. 
grow up, show some maturity, learn a few things. If you don't like Gina Reinhart, don't take her money and then figure out yourselves how to deal with that $11 million hole. It's about to swallow your careers simply because you choose to preach the catechism of the world's new religion. It was when I was talking to Lord Sumption last week that we both referred to John Adams, one of the founders of American democracy, who warned that, and I quote, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes and exhausts itself. There was never a democracy yet that didn't commit suicide, unquote. It's an appropriate analogy to use for the Conservative Party, pardon me, the Conservative Party in Britain. Jake Thrupp is the 25-year-old director of programming here at ADH, but his political instincts are second to none. He's just been in the bowels of the Conservative Party conference in Britain and has only just returned home. The last time we spoke to him from the conference, Jake expressed significant reservations about the capacity of the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng. Well, after 38 days in office, the Prime Minister Liz Truss has sacked her Chancellor, one of her strongest supporters, Kwasi Kwarteng, because the financial markets were telling the Prime Minister the so-called mini-budget was a disaster. And now legitimate concerns are being asked as to whether Liz Truss herself can survive. In 41 days in office, she's lost her Chancellor, her signature tax cuts, and all authority as British Prime Minister. Some are saying the next to go will be the Prime Minister herself. And if, as the polls suggest, an election were conducted on the basis of the current polling figures, with a very, very ordinary Labor Party, they're up to 33 points ahead of the Conservative Party government. Then the Conservatives would win only 73 seats in the House of Commons out of 650. When a major party could be reduced to such impotence, to quote John Adams, democracy itself may be committing suicide. Jake's jo Jake joins me with his instincts onto all of this. Jake, thank you for your time. I said it was 41 days that Liz Truss has been in office, but 12 of those were during the national mourning period for the Queen when government all but ground to a halt. As one correspondent said, her progression from chocolates to boiled lollies has been swift. What were prominent people in the Conservative Party telling you at Birmingham? Well, they're very disillusioned. Uh, thank you for having me on the, the show again, Alan. Um, look, they're very disillusioned. And um, basically, it'll be a miracle if Liz Truss makes it to Christmas. They're already moving against her. Her credibility has been shot because of this. She may as well, they may as well just shred the mini budget. Her first major mistake were her cabinet appointments when she took over, uh, loaded the cabinet with all her own supporters, which has disillusioned people further who supported Rishi Sunak, the, the former chancellor. And you're right now, Kwasi Kwarteng, who was actually one of her allies in the party, uh, along with Coffey, who is the deputy prime minister and health secretary. So now she's isolated Kwarteng, uh, who have, you, you, you informed me prior to the interview, apparently he found out uh, through the papers that he was being sacked. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the London Times rang him when he was on his way to 10 Downing Street to say, you're about to be sacked. He knew nothing about it. So now he's the set. So now, so now as a result, he's been humiliated. He's the mm. second shortest serving chancellor in British history. And um, basically he's been sacked for doing what Liz Truss wanted him to do because there's reports today that he actually opposed a lot of the measures or, or you know, was strongly against a lot of the measures being proposed in the mini budget. But of course, uh, the prime minister insisted. And when that's the case, you just go along with it. Yes, this is dramatic international mm. stuff, I've got to tell you. This is a massive story. It is Great Britain after all, one of the big powers in the world. So after three weeks of market chaos, soaring interest rates and plummeting poll ratings, her much vaunted growth strategy has no friends, including those sitting around the cabinet table. So Jake, that being the case, what is the point of her prime ministership? I mean, how could she remain credible when she won the party leadership on an agenda of radical economic reform, which she's now ditched? She mocked the warnings of her rival Rishi Sunak on what would happen in the market and to mortgages under her scenario. Sunak has now been proven correct. How can this woman remain any, retain any credibility with her peer group? No, she can't. She can't. And that's why her premiership has to conclude because, I mean, it was, again, the mini budget. I mean, borrowing more money to fund tax cuts. 
Uh, and she's lost the narrative, quite frankly. She's lost the narrative. They never communicated what the growth plan, why it would be good. Um, in the, and they have spooked the markets. They've spooked the money men and women out there. And, uh, and see, she's allowed also the case of, okay, increasing mortgage, mortgage rates. She's allowed that to be pinned on her government, which if you were a half-decent politician, you go, well, hang on a minute, this isn't my fault. This is, was a failure of the central bank. Uh, and this is this is out of control spending, stimulus packages uh, during the, the, the pandemic. Um, therefore, monetary policy has to tighten and therefore uh, the interest rates are going Correct. up. I mean, that's not as, as a result of Liz Truss, but she's mm. allowed that to now filter mm. through the narrative. So she is under attack on all fronts. She's now again throwing Kwarteng under the bus, which is no good. Uh, so now Jeremy Hunt has been installed and as a, as a and now a very commanding figure. I mean, this was a bloke who basically his ministerial career, everyone thought his ministerial career was done after he ran for the leadership against Boris Johnson. Uh, for the last three years, hasn't been cited, was really frozen out of the government. Now... Uh, he's he's been resurrected yeah, because uh, he's a Sunak supporter. That's right. Mm. Yeah, and seen as a safe pair of hands as well. So you you are moving amongst all of these people, the Conservative Party people, the Downing Street heavyweights. Uh, is the mood, and you've only been left a couple of days. Is the mood in the Conservative Party, Downing Street, and the electorate that Liz Truss has lost all authority? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So if the the answer is yes, so if the Parliamentary Party feels this way, what do you think will happen next? I mean, you mentioned Christmas. Surely she can't get to Christmas. No, I don't think so. And there's now talk. They are they are putting a lot of pressure on on the 1922 committee, uh, this Sir Graham Brady, who's the chairman of that committee, to uh, basically waive the rules of not allowing a, a leadership contest so soon. It's usually the tw there's usually 12 months after a new leader's installed. They're immune from a challenge. Uh, they're putting pressure on him to waive that rule. I see William Hague came out yesterday and said that membership should not be granted a vote anymore, which is huge. So they basically want to change the rules now to install a leader mm. and they don't want to go to grass. So grassroots conservatives mm. are going to be very angry about this. So they basically, the, the, the unity candidate here, I would say is my money would be on the defense secretary, Ben Wallace. He is mm. seen as a very unifying figure. Mm. They are talking about this Sunak. He wouldn't, he wouldn't win an oil painting competition. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. No, and also he's never been tested on no, domestic issues. No, there, uh, there were there was talk at the end of last week, which I mentioned on the program here, uh, about a Sunak mordant ticket. They didn't seem to know whether it would be mordant for oh. Prime Minister or Sunak for Chancellor. What, as you were leaving there, was there any mood about that having yeah, any appeal? lots of talk about that. I mean, Penny Mordaunt should be the next one, Sat. Yes. She, she's undermining the Prime Minister all the time, uh, comes out, gives these sound bites, and then retreats, and then writes an op-ed the next day and goes, oh, no, 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 but we've all got to support Liz Truss. That's what, that's what we need for Britain. I mean, she, she's overly ambitious. Uh, basically the Josh Frydenberg of the UK. And um, uh, no, and the Sunak thing, that's too, he's, still, he's still a Judas figure over there. Because so, of what he did to Boris. Correct. Backstab mm. And look, Boris, should, they should never have ousted Boris never, Johnson. Never, never, And they all know that now. But Boris apparently loves this new speaking gig. He was, I think... Yeah, he, yeah. Yeah. $150,000 $150, to speak in America, <laughs> and he loves it. And it would be too soon to bring him back to, but, uh, you know, the, the, yeah. So, and then you've got, so you've got a lot of, and then a lot of Boris's rusted on supporters within the party would not accept Rishi Sunak as leader. So now it's, oh, it is. Yes, I mean, one of, the, one of the most offensive things, I suppose, to, to the Brits who really, we have a Westminster system here in imitation of the British system. It's meant to be the ideal system and so on. Now they're saying that the UK resembles Italy. Italy's had 69 governments since World War II and 29 prime ministers, no women, but one about to come on board. From your discussions with those in charge, can the Conservative Party recover? After there's a long way to go, two, two and a plus years. Yeah, yeah. I, look, I think they can. They're very defeatist over there. Everyone who I was speaking to, uh, I was going to a few lunches around Westminster for a few days, and I actually, I actually, look, I actually got a ticket into Prime Minister's questions, and she was very, very 
unimpressive uh, Liz Truss. Her parliamentary performance is very bad, and that was her time to shine. Mm. And they were saying, hey, this is the big one. You've really got to motivate the troops. Couldn't do it. Uh, you're right about Labor. Keir Starmer was no better. Mm. But, um, yeah, oh, look... I don't know where it's going to who end impressed, up. Who impressed, of all these people you met and saw and yeah. listened to, who impressed you most? I know you had some thoughts about Suella Braverman. She's very she good. She's a King's Counsel, that's the old QC, uh, tough portfolio home secretary. She's only yes. 42 years of age, born in London, raised in Wembley, but she's the daughter of parents, both of Indian origin. She's got a master's degree in European and French law from the distinguished Sorbonne. And she took her oath of office on the Dhammapada, which is a collection of sayings of the Buddha in verse four. Mm. What do you make of Bravo? She's very good, very good. Um, I was at a function with her. She has her eyes on the top prize, but she doesn't want it too soon. She wants to prove herself in this portfolio. She wants to turn back the boats, stop all these illegal illegal uh, immigrants and the, the channel crossings that are happening at the moment. And I mean, there's something like 32,000 have just rock, they just rock up on the beaches there. And just, they seriously, they just rock up on the beaches across the channel. She wants to stop that. She's big on this Rwanda plan, which uh, Pretty Patel could not get through uh, because the EU sort of blocked it and all this sort of stuff. So she wants, she wants time to prove herself. And then I think she will go for it. But look, I'm not as defeatist as, as, as a lot of people who I was speaking to were. Uh, they can definitely beat Labor. Labor have no plan. Uh, Keir Starmer, very unimpressive. It, I tell you what, if 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 uh, Angela Rayner was the, uh, the deputy, the deputy who's the deputy now, if she was the leader, oh, they'd yeah. be in trouble. <laughs> She's a tough. Bird. There is there She's is hatred in her eyes when you when you in Parliament. She hates the other side, and she could do it. <laughs> Just before you go, the problem with politics. I hate to disillusion a young man mm. who's immersed in politics, but the problem with politics is that you often only get one chance to make a good first impression. Have the Brits and her MPs had a look at Liz Truss and simply said, sorry, we don't want her. Yes, yes. I think there's a lot of regret there. And yeah, correct. I, I, she's running on borrowed time. And terrible judgment, of course. Terrible judgment, terrible judgment. I mean, it was, went down like a lead balloon. She never had to do the mini budget. This is what I never understand. I mean, she rushed this mini budget. It never, it didn't have to happen no, like this. No. Didn't have to happen like this. And then this. she said she was not for turning, which was a nod to yeah. her heroine, Margaret Thatcher. But she's now turned so many times with no sense of remorse. Correct. Okay, second, I said it was the last question. This is my last. You're too young to be Nostradamus, but could her premiership become the shortest in British history? I mean, James Waldegrave was there, but he wasn't, he didn't form a government. He was there for a couple of days, eight days, I think. And George Canning was Prime Minister for 119, but he died. So in modern history, Sir Alec Douglas Hume was one year and one day. So she might make a bit of history yet, do you reckon? Yeah, I think so. No, I think so. Um, and look, if they do, if they put the right person in, not Rishi Sunak, not Penny Morden. If they put someone else in, I think they've got a real chance to, to, to resurrect the government. Good yeah, on you. Very impressive. Well done, Jake. There he is. Impressive young bloke, isn't it? He's just been there in the, in the middle of all of this. Oh, but it is Great Britain. I mean, this is one of the leading world's powers. They've got a leader. It's got any credibility. The parliament's in disarray. It means a lot to the rest of the free world, I have to tell you. Jake Thrupp, who's with us here at ADH, he's the director of content in the program. Yeah, bosses around is what we can and can't say. <laughs> oh, he's still listening to me. <laughs> That's it. His name is Jake Trupp and he replaces me on the program when I'm, oh, well, not here. There's been a tremendous response to the interview I did last week with Lord Sumption, the former judge of the Supreme Court in Britain, but also an acclaimed author and medieval historian. The substance of that interview, as you might recall, was the profound loss of freedoms during coronavirus. He made the point that the British state exercised coercive powers over its citizens on a scale, he said, never previously attempted. Tellingly, of Australia, Lord Sumption said, quote, because he's been here on a visit, the ease with which people could be terrorised into surrendering basic freedoms, which are fundamental to your existence, came as a shock to me in March 2022, unquote. Lord Sumption argued in Britain as in Australia, that he had witnessed, quote, the most significant interference in personal freedom in the history of Britain, unquote. Well, all of us would nod our heads in agreement that during coronavirus, the ease with which we were being terrorised into surrendering basic freedoms was something utterly alien to the Australian way of life. Australians surrendered 
against their will. But surely one of the most central freedoms that must be honoured is the relationship between the patient and the doctor. As an individual, you must be free to consult whom you wish and equally free to work with your doctor in determining what medication or what course of action should next be taken. But during coronavirus, government interfered with that relationship. The Queensland doctors were threatened with jail if they offered certain medical prescriptions to the patient, even though the patient was willing. And if you're a broadcaster, you would be cancelled if you mentioned the conclusions of medical experts who disagreed with what we were being fed by politicians. Well, this brings us to the Australian neurosurgeon, Dr. Charlie Teo. Last year, the New South Wales Medical Council imposed a series of conditions on his practice after jealous informants made allegations that Charlie Teo gave patients false hope. Dr. Teo has dedicated his 35-year career to the most difficult brain surgery cases that other neurosurgeons can't or won't take on. Charlie Teo has raised more than $51 million for brain cancer research. He's established the largest tumour bank in the Southern Hemisphere, but he's been virtually banned from performing life-saving operations, potentially life-saving operations that don't all save lives in Australia. I mentioned last month that six well-respected surgeons from around the globe have given references to the Medical Council of New South Wales in support of Dr. Charles Teo, including the Stanford University Medicine's Associate Professor of Neurosurgery. I quoted one Sydney man who said, after his daughter was given her own death sentence, and I quote, I challenge any of Dr. Teo's critics to tell me what they would do if they received the diagnosis we did. If they were told this is the end of the road for their mum, daughter or sister, they'd come running to find Dr. Teo, unquote. Well, at the weekend, we learned of a couple whose 10-year-old son was saved by Charlie Teo in a Spanish hospital. And importantly, the parents called on medical authorities to allow other parents to at least be given the choice to seek Dr. Teo's help. This is the point that Lord Sumption was making. Governments stealing from people their basic freedoms, including the freedom to consult with whomever in the medical world you wish to consult and the freedom to make your own choice following appropriate consultation with the medical person of your choice. This was a couple who took their own 10-year-old boy to Spain after everything failed here to be treated by Charlie Teo. And they are heartbroken and furious that other parents may never have the choice to seek the help of Dr. Teo. The couple from Leppington, Jad and Alana Chaheen, went in search of answers after witnessing their soccer-loving 10-year-old being struck down by debilitating migraines. As Mr. Chaheen has said, quote, we were so very lucky to find the brain stem tumour by chance. But they were told that this type of brain stem tumour was generally inoperable. An agitated father said that no surgeon here gave him any confidence about the prospects of his son. But then according to the father, one surgeon said, quote, there used to be a surgeon named Charlie Teo, but then he started charging people their mortgage. And that's why none of them support him anymore, unquote. A lie, of course. The father heard the name Charlie Teo and began his mission to find him. Said the dad, Dr. Teo was, quote, very direct and matter of fact. He went through the pros and cons of doing nothing, the pros and cons of operating. But when they finished with the consultation, they believed that Dr. Teo was the only surgeon whom they would allow to, quote, touch our Cooper. Off to Spain, courtesy of family and friends, the budget was well below what they were led to expect. Cooper had the surgery on September 5. Dr. Teo guided Cooper's operation in the Spanish hospital. But as the mother said, Cooper could be Charlie's last surgery overseas because no one wants the bad press from Australia, unquote. Indeed, the mother echoed Lord Sumption's conclusions of last week that robbing families of the choice of having Charlie Teo, the freedom to choose Charlie Teo is inconceivable. She said, quote, we cannot believe this is happening in a country like Australia, unquote. You see, it's often only when you're forced into a corner that you realise how important basic freedoms are. The freedom to choose your own doctor and allow him to determine medications and procedures must surely remain one of our most basic freedoms. It was denied to victims of coronavirus. We should never allow governments ever again to come between the patient and his doctor. Charlie Teo is a metaphor of where we finish up. 
when bureaucrats play God with both doctors and patients. Well, before we go, if there's one man we should be listening to, and you agree with me from your correspondence, when it comes to the science behind man-made, so-called man-made climate change, it's the world-renowned geologist, Professor Ian Plymer. I know I've spoken to him often, and as Professor Plymer himself says, I don't have opinions, I have facts. And as science requires, his facts, quote, are repeatable and validated. Well, some examples. According to Professor Plymer, quote, no one has ever proven that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. For more than two decades, he said, Professor Plymer, I've been asking scientists for this proof. If proven, it would also have to be shown that natural carbon dioxide emissions, 97% of the total, don't drive global warming. This has never been done. Secondly, Plymer says, since the time of Christ, there have been thousands of predictions about the end of the world. If just one prediction was correct, we'd not be here. All climate predictions in the 20th and 21st centuries were incorrect. Says Professor Plymer, past climates have been cyclical. He points to tectonic cycles that last 400 million years, galactic cycles that last 143 million years, orbital cycles that last 100,000, 40,000, 23,000 years, solar cycles that last 11 years, oceanic cycles that last 60 years, and lunar cycles that last 18.6 years. Professor Plymer notes, non-cyclical impacts such as massive explosive volcanoes. He concludes that the quote, many cycles have not changed because human beings are alive today and can't be changed by feelings, ideology or legislation. Next, the professor says, quote, compared to today's global temperature, the planet has been warming for the past 14,400 years, cooling since the Holocene optimum, cooling since the time of Jesus, warming since the time of the Vikings, cooling since medieval times, and warming since the Little Ice Age, which peaked 300 years ago. He says, since the intense use of coal in the Industrial Revolution, some 170 years ago, the planets had three slight warmings, two slight coolings, and one period of stasis. Stasis means nothing happening, inactivity. Quoting Professor Plymer, if human emissions of carbon dioxide drive warming, then there should have been no coolings or stasis. And finally, he says, quote, Australia is already at net zero because the absorption of carbon dioxide by grasslands, crops, rangelands, forests, soils and continental shelf waters is far greater than that from human being emissions, unquote. My final comment, if only our children got this information at school, instead of the green hysteria from numpties like Professor Tim Flannery, who said the rain would never fill our dams, which are now overflowing. That's all from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at eight. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.